Open up your Bibles again to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 23 through 26 this morning. And in these verses, Jesus is going to expose for us the dangerous deceptions that attend wealth. And he's going to reveal to us the necessity of sovereign grace and salvation. Now, I would begin by noting that Satan deceives more by wealth than he does by poverty. He deceives more by wealth than he does by poverty. It is a great tool in the, of the deceptions of the evil one. But I want to begin with this, lest we have a wrong idea of wealth and misunderstood, understand the Lord's words here. Everything that God has created in this world, He created with lavish beauty and abundance to be enjoyed by man. The abundance of creation and the abundance of our possessions are not in and of themselves the issue. In Genesis 1.31, we read that God saw all that He made and behold, it was very good. It was pleasing to Him in all of its beauty and in all of its abundance. In chapter 2, verse 9, after he had set Adam in the garden, the garden of Eden, it says that out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every, every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. God created creation that would be pleasing, that would be good, that is delightful for his creatures made in his image to rejoice in. 1 Timothy six seventeen says this, that God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And in 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, he says that everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Wealth, abundance, beauty are creations of God. They are good in and of themselves. And before sin entered into the world, there was no conflict between the lavish abundance of God's creation and the worship of man's heart. And that's important to understand. In man's enjoyment of creation, he understood them as gifts, as expressions of love, as provisions by his creator. And therefore, Adam's enjoyment of them was made complete and whole in the gratitude and delight in God he experienced in his enjoyment of them. So as he enjoyed them, he delighted in God, and God was glorified in that. And this is by God's design. When sin entered into the world, man perverted God's abundance, and instead of being a means of worship to God, it became a means to satisfy self. It was seen as something to be enjoyed apart from the worship and the glory of God. So what God created good and for His glory, Satan and man turned into a means of destruction, deception, and debasement. So abundance in a fallen world becomes not a means then so much of worshiping God, but as a replacement for God and a replacement for genuine worship and adoration of Him. In salvation, the sinner's delight in this world is eclipsed by delight in Christ and in God Himself. And that is what is behind the Lord's instructions to us this morning in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 26. So read with me, actually beginning back in verse 16, and we'll read all the way down through verse 26 so we can have context. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go Sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, 
Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I want you to notice first, as you go back to verse 23, the stumbling block of self-sufficiency. The stumbling block of self-sufficiency. And I want to say up front that I call this the stumbling block because Jesus has already used this as a description of those things that keep men away from the grace of God and from the kingdom of God. You'll remember back in chapter 18, verse 7, he says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. In other words, there are stumbling blocks in this world... And there are stumbling blocks within the individual sinner that keep them from the grace of God and from the kingdom of God and experiencing all that he is for the sinner in Christ. And so here was this man. He was unwilling to exercise that kind of repentance because his possessions or his wealth or his riches were to him a stumbling block. It kept him from the kingdom of God. He came saying that he wanted eternal life, but in fact, we learn that he did not want eternal life enough to abandon everything that he had to gain Christ. And so it is this man's wealth that Jesus is going to focus on. Look at verse 23. So after this man walked away, after he went away grieving, after Matthew has informed us why, Because he owned much property, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this is an astounding statement. An astounding statement. Spoken to his disciples who had just observed these events that had taken place. This man running up to Jesus, seeking eternal life and leaving without it. Now notice, it is not the disciples who ask the question. It's not the disciples, but Jesus who takes the initiative. And I really think that this is in part because Jesus himself was so emotionally affected by this man's rejection. It grieved him. It grieved him. It grieved him that sinners rejected him. It grieved him that his own people rejected him. Mark reminded us, if you'll remember, that it said when this young man came up to him and before he walked away that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. If you'll remember that when Jesus looked over the rejection of Jerusalem, he wept for them. He wept for them. He did not take it as a light thing when sinners rejected his grace. He knew the destruction that was going to come to his own people. He knew the consequences of this man's decision, and it grieved him. I think he was emotionally affected, deeply He also knows the astonishment and the confusion of the disciples over what has just taken place. They didn't understand this. They didn't understand. And Jesus wants to clarify for them and for us just what happened and give a warning to us all. So he says, truly I say to you, and we're used to that, that when Jesus uses those words, he's saying something significant. He's saying something that he particularly wants those to uh, those who are listening to him, to hear and to pay attention to. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now make a couple of observations here. The kingdom in this context, we've already noted, is the sphere of God's grace and his salvation. It's always the sphere of his rule. God rules over everything that he has created. But here he's speaking of the kingdom, that which belongs to those who know him savingly. It has been equated with eternal life. That's what the man was seeking. 
Notice that he says it is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. He uses in verse 23 and verse 24. These are interchangeable. To enter is in the future tense. He's speaking here of that future coming age of the resurrection of the righteous, which we have noted. But also, he's speaking of that fellowship with God, that joy in his presence, that life, that enjoyment of our creator that happens now in the one who knows him, the one who is in his kingdom. And he says it is hard for a rich person or a wealthy person to enter into that relationship with God. Now notice what he does not say. He does not say that rich people can never be saved. He does not say that it is a sin to be rich or it is a sin to be wealthy. He also does not say that rich people are the most wicked on the earth and God cannot save them or God will not save them. He doesn't say any of those things or anything like those things. That's not his point. However, Jesus does single out wealth as a particular stumbling block to keep people from entering the kingdom of God. And he says it is harder for them. Now, why is it harder? Why is it more difficult for them? Well, the answer in its basic form is fairly obvious, isn't it? They have more of this world to give up. They have more of this world to give up, right? Isn't that why the rich man walked away from salvation? The reason given by the Holy Spirit recorded for us in Scripture is that he owned much property. That's why he walked away. It was too much to give up. He owned a greater portion of this world, and in fact, the world owned a greater portion of him. And the fact is, the greater the wealth that a person has, the greater their attachment to the things of this world. That's how it works in a fallen world and in fallen hearts. And the greater attachment to the things of this world, the harder it is to break from them. Because it holds more of their heart and their affections, more than it should. And so it's not surprising to us that Scripture is full of warnings to the rich. And not only Scripture, but Jesus in His ministry here had much to say to those who were wealthy or to those who were encumbered in their hearts with the love of wealth. Let me just read to you a few of them, particularly out of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, just listen as I read, verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and you shall weep. In Luke chapter 12, he says this in verse 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist in his possessions. After giving a parable of a man whose life was called to account as he stored up more of his wealth for his own use, he says in verse 20 of Luke 12, But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We remember the rich man in Lazarus, the rich man who lived in opulence and abundance and he flaunted it before the whole world and Lazarus the poor man who would not even receive attention or any help from the rich man and of course the rich man went to Hades and Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom a euphemism for heaven the rich man suffered Lazarus knew God's grace You'll remember Demas who abandoned the faith because Scripture tells us that he loved this world and so he walked away from Christ even though he had been a traveling companion and a partner in ministry with the Apostle Paul himself. You'll remember Judas who walked with the Lord all during his ministry. So for three years he walked with him, he heard him teaching, he saw his miracles, he saw his life and yet he sold the Lord for what? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. And of course, John tells us he always used to steal from the money bag. And so it is with this young man. He walked away because of his wealth, just as so many others have before and so many after who have followed in his footsteps. But I want to be clear here that Jesus is not talking about mere possessions of things. 
He's not talking about mere possessions of things as if wealth in and of itself were the primary issue. God had many wealthy people in his word. You know that. Abraham was very rich. Isaac, Jacob, David, many others. Several wealthy people supported the ministry of Jesus and allowed him to do what he did. And people, wealthy people have supported the church throughout the history of it. In Isaiah 53, the prophet looks forward and says that Jesus, the suffering, well, looking forward to the suffering servant, he was with a rich man in his death. He was with a rich man in his death. There a reference to Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb he was buried in. So he's not simply talking about wealth here, but he's aiming at something much deeper. It's not simply possessions in and of themselves, but it is this. It is what that man sought from them. It's what he found in them that was damning his soul. Money is not the issue. It's the love of money. It's the love of money. In other words, it's covetousness. The only problem is that it holds too much of a hold on the fallen human heart. And let me tell you, lest we check out those who don't consider themselves wealthy, this is an issue for both the rich and the poor. And quite frankly, somebody who is poor can be more covetous of heart by a great degrees than somebody who has an abundance. They can love wealth by what, and even though they don't have it more than somebody who does have it loves what they have. This is not simply an issue of having many things. It is an issue of a covetous heart. And so Jesus is exposing here a more serious spiritual problem. So let me note to you briefly then two essential dangers that come with wealth. Two essential dangers that come with wealth. And it is this, and they are fairly obvious, but let us consider them. And I would ask you to consider your own heart and your own view of your possessions in your life as we think of them. The first is this, that when men have an abundance, there is a tendency to put our trust in them. There's a tendency to put our trust in them. Wealth. Wealth has an intoxicating sense of security. It easily provides for a person's needs. It easily provides for pleasure. And it gives a sense of self-sufficiency that can be intoxicating. That's why we said the stumbling block is not simply wealth. The stumbling block is a sense of self-sufficiency that causes one to depart from a sense of dependence upon the Lord. There's many verses that could be given. Let me read to you one. Ecclesiastes 10.19 says this. Men prepare a meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. And the fact is that if you have wealth, and if you have money, and if you have abundance, and if you have comfort in material things, life is easier. Life is easier. You can throw money at just about anything and make the problem go away or more bearable. That's a fact of life. That's a fact of life. That's what... The preacher is talking about in Ecclesiastes. One ancient writer has said this, Silver and gold, these are, according to my opinion, the most useful gods. If these have a place in the house with what thou wilt, all will be thine. In other words, you can have what you want. You can have what you want. That is the lure of money. And it represents well the attitude of men. Just listen to a few of the things that God has to say about this. Psalm 49, 6. He speaks of those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. Psalm 52, 7 says, Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but rested in the abundance of his riches. He was secure in them. Psalm 62, 10 says, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them, which is the temptation. It is the temptation. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Do you see the theme? When riches increased, there is a tendency to find in them a security where we put our trust in them, where we lean on them rather than leaning on God. And it's this ease and sense of security in riches that leads to proud self-reliance. And it becomes a replacement for total and glad 
dependence upon God. We're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but that is repeatedly what happened to the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 8, he says, I'm going to bring you into a land. This land is going to have an abundance of things. And as you experience the abundance of this land, your heart is going to forget God. It's going to forget. And you're going to say, by my power, by my strength, I have done these things. And you no longer will see an absolute dependence on your maker who brought you into this land. Yes, indeed, who redeemed you. Redeemed you. It's the story of Israel, it's the story of our own nation, and it's the story of individuals. Why are we where we are as a nation? It's because we've lived in opulence, abundance. We've had wealth untold, and we've taken security in it, and we have no more need of God. Who needs God? I'm fine on my own. And this is exactly what happened to this rich young ruler and happens to so many. You'll remember the warning of Jesus when he gave the parable of the soils, he says this, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. They hear it. They may even desire it at some level like this rich young ruler, but at the end of the day, What grabbed the affections of their heart was not the grace of God in Christ, but it was the things of this world. We would not want to read over that. Because do you realize how many people have been blinded to the kingdom of God and the grace of God because of wealth, because of possessions? That's why God has so much to say about it. Let me note secondly then, wealth supplies an intoxicating but false sense of joy. An intoxicating but a false sense of joy. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. This too is vanity. In 1 Timothy 6.10 he says this, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. They've longed for it because in that wealth there was a promise of joy. And yet, in the end, it only led to death. And some have rejected Christ to gain wealth, thinking their pleasure was in it, only to embrace its deceit and its pain. Of course, make no, make no mistake, wealth, like all of sin, or the covetousness, like all of sin, has pleasure for a moment. It's not that there's no pleasure. Some live lavishly. Remember what he said in Luke 6, that there is a comfort to those who are wealthy. Those who are wealthy are well-fed. Those who are wealthy laugh. There's an ease to life. Remember Asaph in Psalm 73? They were boasting. They were living life easily. Every care was taken care of for those who were wealthy and yet wicked. There is a certain comfort in it. There is a certain blessing. There is a certain happiness that it can bring in this world. But in the end, it doesn't supply the satisfaction our hearts were designed for. This rich man had wealth, but what did he not have? He didn't have joy. He didn't have eternal life. That is the issue. Let me read to you just one other verse here. And then we'll move on. Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Let me just read it to you. You know, God was constantly warning His people. Constantly warning His people that your joy is to come from me. That He is the fount of living water. He is the source and the spring and the wellspring of joy for His people. And so he says in Isaiah 55, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen to me carefully, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. There is abundance, but it's not in the wealth. And as long as men look for it in something other than what God has designed our hearts to find it in, namely himself, it will lead to ruin and deception and darkness. And again, this applies to all men, not only those who are of a higher economic status. The issue is not wealth, but a heart completely satisfied in the Lord, living in dependence upon him. And what cuts through all of it, what cuts through all of it is this. It's being satisfied in Christ. It's being satisfied in Christ. 
And so if we look at this rich young ruler, or if we look at repentance, or we look at the gospel, or we look at the cost of the kingdom of God, and we look at what is lost when we forsake this world to follow Christ, if that's how we view repentance, then we're really missing what Jesus is saying. We're really missing it. Listen to what he said again. Listen to what Jesus said again and what he'll emphasize next week. Jesus did not simply say, leave everything. That was not where he left it. He said, leave everything, get rid of it, and come and follow me, and you will have treasure. It only won't be in this world. It's going to be where? In heaven. It's going to be in heaven. And it's going to be greater than anything you can imagine. If you can only imagine it, if you only tasted it, if you only saw what kind of treasure God really had in store for you, then you would gladly leave all of those things. You would gladly leave all of them. Not with begrudging, but with joy out of gaining Christ. So the issue here is this, that this man and those who have wealth or are blinded by this world, they do not see the glory of Christ. And his salvation simply isn't that important. That's the issue of wealth. That's the issue of the deception of the heart of self-sufficiency. Godliness is not marked by being poor. Godliness is not marked by being rich. Godliness is not marked by being middle class. Godliness is marked by in all things finding contentment in Christ and loving Him. To be able to say with Paul, whether I have a lot or whether I have a little, I am content. I am joyful. I can serve Christ happily with whatever He gives to me. That means this then. The way that we handle wealth becomes the truest expression of our faith. This man walked away ultimately because he did not believe what Jesus promised him. Ultimately because he did not believe what Jesus promised him. He did not believe that treasure in heaven was greater than what he had here on this earth. He simply couldn't go there. He was not willing to accept it. And so he walked away as many others do. Now by contrast, Zacchaeus gave most of it away. And so have all those who truly Tasted and seen the glory of Christ. Who do you think, though? Who would you think of when I, if I were to ask you, who is the greatest, one of the greatest, probably, humanly speaking, example of giving up everything to follow Christ? Of giving up everything because of the glory of the kingdom of heaven? Let me suggest to you that it's Moses. That it's Moses. Listen to the testimony of his faith by the writer of Hebrews in 11.24. By, Mo- by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses could have had everything that Egypt had to offer, a land of abundance, and he considered faithfulness to his God and the promises of God as greater than all of the riches of Egypt. And where did he go when he fled after he murdered the Egyptian or killed them? He went out to the wilderness and lived as a shepherd. He lived in the courts of Pharaoh and then he was living in the lands of the wilderness watching sheep. Why? Because he had right understanding of what was of true value. And so this speaks to all of us, beloved, not just the wealthy. There is a particular application to those who have more, but it speaks to all of us. And quite frankly, we who live in America are wealthy according to the world's standards. We know that, but we need to be reminded of that because we have the same tendency. Now let me make two general applications then before we move on. The first is this. Because our view of wealth is a demonstration of our faith, Because our view of wealth is a demonstration of our faith, giving is a matter of worship and it's not a legal sense of tithe. I have never preached and Parker has never preached a sermon on giving. Not to say it won't happen, but that hasn't happened. Because that's really not the issue. The issue is about worship of Christ. And so if Christ is held up in all of His glory and the glory of God is made manifest in all that He has done for us in Christ, then the natural overflow of that in the hearts of His children is to be generous and to be lavish in what they give and, what they, and how they serve God and worship Him by what He's given. This is the exact point that Paul made in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read it to you. 
2 Corinthians 8. This is the heart of everything that he says on giving. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And the fact is, if you get that, then you will be generous. If you get that, you will be a giver because you will be overflowing with gratitude to Christ. Let me ask you a second question. When you think of giving in the New Testament, what is the closest Old Testament parallel that you think of? Where would you go? Where would you go to think of that? Some of you might say the tithe, right? We hear that often. Some of you might say the tithe. I'd suggest to you that's wrong. Where you would want to go to understand the heart of worship is in the free will offerings. That's an example of New Testament giving. Because these were sacrifices that were not required by the children of Israel. It was a way for the worshiper in the Old Covenant to come to God to say, I'm simply overflowing with praise and worship to you. I want to express my love for you. I want to express my worship for you. I want to express my trust in you by bringing you this offering. And so it is and should be for us. Secondly, a second application, general application is this. Wealth and one's attitude towards money is one of the truest and surest ways to expose a false teacher. It's one of the truest ways to expose a false teacher. The Pharisees were lovers of money. They were lovers of money. In 2 Timothy 3.2, it says that those in the church he's talking about are going to be characterized by many things. One of those things at the top of the list was they will be lovers of money. Lovers of money. This is a deception that has led so many astray. You want to know where the two areas where pastors fall? Do you want to know where they fall? Not brain surgery. Sex, sexual lust, and money. Greed. Those are the two areas. You put them on a chart, those are going to top it. Sexual sin and money. That is a deception of Satan. We do not want to take these words lightly. And we do not want to miss that the very things that Christ is holding out as a warning to men that this can keep them from the kingdom of God is the very thing that what would be identified as a large part of the church, so it's apostate, is the health and wealth charismatic movement. The very thing that Christ says here keeps people out of the kingdom of God is the very lure that they hold out to try to bring people into the kingdom of God as they present it. We should be very warned by this. So the very things that Christ warns us of to keep away from and beware of are the very things that they use to appeal to the carnal flesh. It is demonic, beloved. It is demonic. It's from the pit. And Jesus here is saying just the opposite. He didn't tell him you would gain the world if you come to him. He's gonna, he says you have to give it all up. You have to give it all up. And this was the truest test of faith. Are you willing to part with those things that you trust in and that you put your hope in? And then Jesus says it even more strongly. Look at verse 24. He says, again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A striking picture. The camel was the largest animal in the land. The needle, the smallest holes that you could have to pass through. The rabbis had a saying about an elephant passing through the eye of the needle. And so Jesus is trying to give a striking picture here. A striking picture as he often does. He speaks of log in your own eye, plucking out your eye, oh, 10,000 talents. Later in Matthew 23, he'll talk about straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. He's making a point. He's making a point here. And the, the point is so striking, actually, that people have tried to explain this away in a variety of ways. Some have sought to say that it's a camel gate that can be in Jerusalem now where an animal has to be unloaded of its things that it's carrying and go low, and that's a picture. But the problem is, is that camel gate didn't exist in the time of Jesus. That can't be what he's talking about. Others will say that because there's a word that's like, like camel that means rope, that that's really what was meant. But that doesn't hold up because most of the manuscripts don't have that and it wouldn't make sense. When there's a scribal error or a change, it's always to make a harder reader easy, reading easier, not an easier reading harder. No, Jesus said camel. Jesus said camel. And his point here is this, that it is impossible. It's impossible. It's impossible. And not just for a rich man, but for any man. And so he finishes, when he finished this statement, look at verse 25. It says this, that when the disciples heard this, 
they were very astonished or greatly astonished. One lexicon described it this way. It's to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed. Now, isn't that striking? Notice that the text does not say that they were astonished that this man walked away. They weren't astonished by that. They weren't astonished by the fact that Jesus made such a demand. In fact, he had made the demand on all the disciples and they had followed him. They weren't astonished by that, but they were astonished by what he was saying about wealth. Why did this greatly astonish them? Let me give you two reasons. One is because they viewed without discernment wealth as a blessing of God. We mentioned that last week. I don't want to spend much time on that. They viewed it as a blessing of God almost undiscerningly. They said, well, this man is religious. This man is a Jew. This man appears to be righteous. Apparently, this is the blessing of God. How in the world could he not be in the kingdom? In the kingdom. There's a second possible thing that amazed them here. Giving to the poor was seen as meritorious. The greater the gift, the greater the pleasure of God. Interestingly, in later writings, the the rabbis mentioned that it was actually wrong to give more than one-fifth or 20% of what you owed to the poor. But those who gave more to the poor out of that 20% were more favored by God and more blessed by God. And so there's a sense here, too, in which they're saying, wow, if even the wealthy who can do such good things to win the favor of God cannot be in the kingdom, who in the world can be in the kingdom? But you know, even more than that, they're devastated by the fact that this rich man represents their own view of the kingdom of God. He represents their own view. And so for God to say that not even a rich man can enter the kingdom of heaven is shattering their own view of the kingdom. And the fact is they were caught up in all the externals and they did not yet get the issue of poverty of spirit. So they were amazed that Jesus said a wealthy man cannot enter the kingdom, or in that fact, any man. Let's look at his last point here and note the sole sufficiency then of God and salvation. And we'll go through this rather quickly. So again, they were stunned by his statement. They were stunned. They were overwhelmed. They didn't quite know how to handle it. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't have a category for what he just said. And so they cry out and they say, Who then can be saved? Who can be saved? And again, this is an amazing question. If this rich man cannot enter into the kingdom of God, if he can't be saved and have eternal salvation and eternal life, then who can? Who can? And look how Jesus answers them. Look at the beginning of verse 26. And looking at them, and this is an intense form of the word here. It's, it's, he's looking at them with intensity. He's looking at them with a piercing gaze. And he says to them, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. His answer is straightforward and uncompromising. If man is left to himself, salvation is impossible. It won't happen at all. If man is left to himself, not only this rich man, but all men, even these disciples themselves, even one like, say, Judas, who was left to himself, then there is no salvation. Everyone would have to suffer the consequences of sin. It would be Hopeless. It would be hopeless. Now, why does Jesus say this? Why does he say this? This this sounds to so many today almost like it would be counterproductive. Why would you say that? Jesus wants to make salvation impossible. That's the issue. He wants to make salvation impossible because he wants them and us to despair of salvation through any other means than by his grace alone. He wants them to feel their total dependence upon God to do everything, to do everything. And he's not only talking about the wealthy at this point, and we have to notice this change. Look at what he says, with man. They say persons or people, uh, the New American Standard does. It's actually man. In other words, with everybody, with all men, this is impossible. This is impossible. Now, what is impossible about it? What is impossible? It's impossible... Because of the futility of works, we covered that. You know that. This man should have known that. It's impossible because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. That was the very heart of the error of their religious system, that doing was a means of gaining from God. 
They had established their own righteousness and rejected the righteousness of God. That's at the heart of it. In other words, this, men can't bring about salvation from themselves. It's nothing you can do. It has to come from God. But Christ is actually saying something, I believe, much more devastating here. Much more devastating than that. Now, that's devastating enough because that leaves everybody in a position of inability, of being unable to do anything on their own for salvation. But what Jesus is getting at is much more devastating than just reminding them again that works will not get them into the kingdom of heaven. The problem was not simply that this man thought eternal life was something he could obtain by doing. That's only one part of it. This is the more devastating thing. Are you ready? And if we don't get this, we will not understand what Jesus is saying here or what he says throughout scripture about man and salvation. The issue with this man is not simply that works could not get him into heaven. It was that he was unwilling to turn to Jesus. Do you understand that? It is that he was unwilling. It was that he was unwilling to believe him. He was unwilling by his own choice to put his treasure in heaven and leave his treasure here on earth. This is why people reject Christ. This is why. It's the issue of the heart. It's not simply a matter of I can't do works. It's that I don't ultimately even want the salvation that God offers in Christ. That's the issue. I ultimately don't want it. On my own, I can't desire it enough to do what is required, which is to renounce myself to gain Christ. That's the issue. Men love the darkness rather than the light. The issue is that they love the darkness rather than the light. And I want to do this quickly, but this is exactly what Paul is saying. And I want to emphasize one thing that I think is many times missed in these words of Paul. And let me just mention them briefly. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this. And we're familiar with the first part of this verse. But I don't know if we're familiar with the rest of it. He says this, speaking to the church, referring to who they were before Christ, he says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. And dead speaks of essentially the inability to respond. That if, you, if you spit on a dead person, they're not going to get up and slap you. If you wave food in front of them, they're not going to be uh, wanting to eat what you have. They're dead. That's the point. But notice what he says here. You were dead, unable to respond to the truth of Christ, unable to respond to the gospel in or by reason of your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But there's what I want you to recognize in verse 3. Among them too, we all formerly lived in what? The lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What was the issue that made us dead? What? It was love of sin. Death is not because there's just something that we would, we would want to respond to God and He won't let us. It is because at the end of the day, the sinner wants their sin more than they want God Himself. That's the issue. Love of sin is the issue. Love of sin and enslavement to sin makes a person unwilling to come to Christ. That was ultimately the issue for this young man. It's ultimately the issue for every man, whatever it may be. That their lust is what controls them. And it means then that every human being since Adam save Christ will always coming into this world because of a natural love to sin choose sin over Christ every single time. Every single time. And by sin, I would define it in two simple ways. It is a love for autonomy. In other words, to live independently from God. To not want to be under God's authority. Ultimately, the sinner will not give that up. And secondly, it is then to seek pleasure apart from God. To seek pleasure apart from God. We want pleasure. Why is sex so prevalent? Because men want to do what they want to do without God saying anything. Why do we want God out of everything? Is because if He isn't there, we have free reign to do it. That's the heart of sin. The heart of sin. And that's ultimately what keeps men from Christ and from God's salvation. And so we need to be very clear here. It is not that man wants to come and God won't let them. 
It is not even that man would possibly come, but God won't even let him get there. It is that none want to come to Christ apart from him doing a work of grace in the heart. This is the devastating effects of sin. The devastating effects of sin. It corrupts the mind, the will, and the affections. It's impossible for a man to come to Christ on their own. Now, some may say, if it is impossible for men and only God can do it, if it was impossible for this rich man, if it was impossible for the disciples, impossible for Judas, impossible for the Pharisees, impossible for the crowds, or impossible for anyone else to come to Jesus on their own, how then is the gospel message fair or sincere, or how is judgment fair? How could he rightly judge this man if it was impossible? We've already answered it. And if you're faced with that question, you need to respond with another question. Why do men not come? That's what we've just answered. They don't come because they love sin. So judgment is fair because at the end of the day, no one can say that God would not let me come when I wanted to. They ultimately will have to be held accountable for not wanting to receive God's grace when it was laid out before them. That makes the gospel sincere. God keeps nobody who wants to away. It is that nobody would want to come on their own. And that's essential to understand. But thankfully, he doesn't leave it there. And I'm going to mention this quickly. This is the last point. It's possible because why? Why is it possible? So it's impossible because man can't work their way there. It's impossible because ultimately man can't even want to get there. It's an issue of unwillingness. But it is possible through God. It is. And thankfully, he gave the second part of this verse. With God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. Why is it possible with God? How is it possible with God? Does he just decide to be nice to some sinners and not nice to other sinners? Is that what it is? Of course not. It's possible because who's the very one speaking to them? Christ. Who is Christ? He's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's the son of God united with flesh who came for the very purpose of being a ransom for sinners. It's possible because Jesus came to stand in their place and in our place. That's why it's possible. It's possible because Jesus came in his life to do what we cannot do. That's why. It's possible because by his life and his death and his resurrection, he stood in our place and we can have life in him. It's God's plan, God's doing, God's initiative, and God's glory. But I want to add this. It's possible also because God doesn't leave the final decision to men. He doesn't leave the final decision of men. If God came in Christ and Christ did everything that he came to do and then that was it, he went back up to heaven, we still would have no hope. Why? Because there's still the rebellion of the heart. But when Christ died for sinners, when Christ died for his own, when Christ came and he purchased the church, he purchased everything related to our salvation. In other words, he even purchased the fact that the Spirit of God would awaken the heart of a dead sinner and come to Christ, that he would remove that natural rebellion. This is what he said to the Pharisee. You cannot see the kingdom of God, he said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born Again, born from above. You cannot come to the Father, he said. You cannot believe unless you're given by the Father and you're drawn. But later, he says, unless you are taught of God. Unless God first teaches the heart. Unless God first teaches the heart. It's that initial work of grace in the heart that God must do. Only God can break the spell of Satan. Paul says that we're held captive by Satan to do his will. But God may be gracious to some and release them from that captivity, 2 Timothy 2. It's God, Satan, who is the God of this world, who blinds the mind of the unbelieving. But it is the Spirit of God that opens the eyes so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4. Now some will say, no, no, no. What that means then also is that God gives what's called prevenient grace. And it means that God removes the total devastation and lifts man up half the way. And then man must go the other half of the way and choose Christ. And that is not what scriptures teach. It's not. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So in man there is no hope, but in the Spirit of God there is hope. And the one who sees their nothingness can come to Christ. Now let me say this, and then we're going to 
come to the Lord's table. Does that leave a sinner with any hope? Does that leave with a sinner with any hope? Some may say, maybe I should just give up. Maybe I should just give up. Should I do that? Well, of course not. The answer is no. First of all, because the gospel is a command to be obeyed. It's not a suggestion. And if you're under conviction of sin, then the words of Christ are precious and true. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. The words of the leper become precious to us. If you are willing, cleanse me. Jesus said, I am willing. Be cleansed. He says that to sinners. There's no sinner under conviction who is rejected from the salvation and the grace of God. Still others may be saying this, I want to come to Christ and I want to be willing, but I ultimately cannot be. I ultimately will not make that decision, though I know that I should, and though I do want to, I know that I won't. Then the question is, or the answer is, cry out to God to make you willing. Say, help my unbelief. I remember right before I was saved in that whole period when God was drawing me to Christ, Trish has the same memory of laying there in bed, knowing I wanted Christ, but knowing I was unwilling to give up my sin. And I just cried out to God and said, God, make me willing. I'm a rebel. I will not come to you on my own. You have to make me willing. You have to do this. And as I pursued Christ by his own working in my heart, he eventually did that, not by a lightning bolt experience, but he did produce faith in my heart and repentance and love for Christ. If you see that you want that, but you cannot, cry out to God. Your Father will give the Holy Spirit to all who ask Him. Finally, as we come in here then, this is the promise of the new covenant. That He will put His Spirit in the heart of the sinner. He'll change a heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh. He will put His law on the heart of His own people. You don't come to Christ on your own strength. You don't know His grace by your own strength. But the gracious enablement of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we celebrate this morning. Pray with me as the men come forward. Our great and holy God, how desperate we are for your grace, but how abundant and lavish and full you are with it. I pray if there are any here this morning that fit into any of those categories, that they would be encouraged by your word. They would be warned by your word that it is not their human decision. And today, if they hear your voice, to embrace your salvation. But I pray, too, that you would cause them to be moved to cry out to you for grace that you are so willing to give. And for the rest of us, may we rejoice in you even now around your table, remembering your sovereign and abundant and lavish grace that you have given to us in Christ through his death and his resurrection. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ruth will pray and the men will deliver the elements.